0: This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org party today.
1: Long history of Black men being overdiagnosed with conditions like schizophrenia and uh, antisocial personality disorder. Um, these really severe kind of conditions and I think that's largely because the diagnostic system that we have doesn't actually offer adequate access for black people.
2: Hi there welcome to students of mind the mental health podcast made by curious minds for curious minds on this podcast we the hosts are just like you eager to learn more about the mind. Here we learn with you and provide you with clear, concise information backed up by real experts about all things mental health. My name is Jade. And hey,
0: my name is Amina,
2: Jade's mom. In today's episode, we sit down with Jarell Caraballo and talk about the mental health experience of Black men and what it's like to be a Black man in the field of psychology. Today's guest is Jarrell Caraballo. Jarrell is a licensed mental health counselor with a focus on issues of race and gender identity, trauma and healing, discrimination and bias, sexuality, gender roles, and spirituality. Jarrell is the co-founder of Viva Wellness, a holistic-based mental health and wellness practice where he and his co-founder provide individual and couples therapy coaching, and workshops. Jarell is also co-host of the Viva Wellness podcast, and his work has been included in Teen Vogue, Essence, and Healthline. Welcome, Jarrell and thank you for taking the time to be here.
1: Sure, thank you for having me.
2: Mm-hmm. So before we get into the questions, I know I said a little about you, but can you talk a little bit about yourself and the work that you do?
1: Sure, um, and, and thank you for that great introduction. Uh, <laughs> it's always interesting for me to hear sort of some of the things I've done read back to me. Cause I'm like, Oh, I guess I did do that. Yeah, that was good. That mm-hmm. was good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm obviously very proud of the work that I do. Most of the time I am spending time with clients in session, providing individual therapy. Um, that's really my bread and butter. Uh, I live in New York city and I'm originally from North Carolina. I moved to New York City for graduate school about ten years ago, and um, actually a little longer um, and have been here ever since and i I really like mental health because and therapy and psychology because it was really one way where I got to understand people more for myself, and therapy is the direct application of that knowledge and And so to me, it's just so important to be able to support people and offer skills and strategies and uh, a non judgmental space to help people learn about themselves and, um, and sort of come to their own understanding and, and practice new things. And so that's what I really love about psychology and mental health. And uh, yeah, I, Viva Wellness was founded a couple of years ago with a longtime friend who was a business partner. We actually attended graduate school together. So that's where we met. And it's a really good match between, you know, the task that we we divide up as a business. We support each other very well, complement each other. Uh, And so we're really excited to be able to offer, you know, all those services. And also online, we offer in our resources page, we have things for people who don't attend therapy with us that might help them on their journey, you know, worksheets, recordings, uh, handouts, uh, relationship surveys you can do with your partner. Uh, so we try and reach as many people as we can with all the work that we do.
2: Yes. I actually, um, directed someone to your resources page the other day because oh, cool. I found that there are a lot of helpful tools on there. So I thought I would like share that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I really wanted to have you on today. Um, because I'm doing this portion of the podcast where I talk about different aspects of mental health in the Black community. Um, And I did an episode on Black women and our mental health, and I really think it's necessary and essential to do one for Black men. Um, So I guess my first question is, like, what is the state of the mental health of Black men today? Like, what are the things we know about Black men's experiences with their mental health?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think 2020 is obviously an interesting year. Um, and I think everyone is a bit more on edge and anxious and depressed or whatever that is for them than, you know, maybe this time last year, generally speaking. And I think for a Black man in particular, um, and I also speak from a place of personal experience as a Black man myself, um, <clears throat> I think it's been, it's been a really challenging time because none of the issues except for COVID um, are new. But when we talk about these racial justice issues, they've really sort of hit this mainstream, more mainstream kind of coverage and conversation. And I think... Um, we're seeing a lot more content about, um, you know, racial injustices, police brutality, violence against black bodies, particularly black men. And so I think that there's, you know, for myself and also for a lot of clients that I've talked to, there's this ongoing sort of burden of being really conscious of that, uh, being really conscious of how you walk in the world and how people are perceiving you. And I think that contributes to a lot of increased anxiety, fear, vigilance that comes with that and wanting to protect ourselves. Uh, And so I think that a lot of people are really struggling to figure out how do you be your best self uh, at this point, knowing that there's so many things going on and we're having all these conversations much more often.
2: Mm -hmm. So that's, that's like a picture of what things look like right now. How has um, black men's mental health changed throughout the years? Or has it has, you know, the way their mental health is approached and talked about has that really changed at all much? Um, Yeah, like, what has that looked like throughout the years?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, as a therapist, I'm very encouraged that I see so many more black men talking about mental health online. Um, It's really been remarkable. And I think you know, even I think it was maybe 2016, um, Kid Cuddy had talked about his mental health issues. And it was the first time where we really saw a black man who didn't have to share. It wasn't about an arrest or, or anything else that was going on. He was just talking about his experience uh, with depression. And I found that so striking because it was like this one voice in a sea of like, a lot of white people talking about their experiences with mental health. And so I think since then there's been an increase in black men talking about mental health online. And I think, I think that's in large part due to the encouragement of black women who have been talking about these issues for longer and inspiring black men to talk about their mental health. And I think that's also contributed to many more black men seeing therapy as a viable space a more viable space, you know, for them than maybe in years past. And so I think there's a lot more interest or even just curiosity about therapy and mental health for black men. And uh, I think that's really good that we're now at a place where we can have more of those conversations like the one we're having today.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, 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 even in my short 20 years, I've seen uh, a change. I think I talked about this in another episode how I was on Instagram and saw a post where a black priest was talking about his experiences with his anxiety. And I just thought that was amazing because not only was he black, he was a man and a priest. Mm -hmm. So that was just like really um, important to me that it was put out for people to see.
1: Absolutely.
2: And so My last question kind of regarding this is um, in terms of like prevalence, are there any mental illnesses that are like statistically more prevalent in the, in black men than other groups?
1: That's an interesting question um, because I think um, what that brings to is like a really complicated discussion about diagnosis and mental health. Uh, So, you know, and I'm I'm not a statistician or researcher, um, but there's been a long history of uh, black men being overdiagnosed with conditions like schizophrenia and uh, antisocial personality disorder, um, these really severe kind of conditions, um, and I think that's largely because the diagnostic system that we have, and the healthcare system that we have doesn't actually offer adequate access for black people. And so one thing that happens is, is that once these symptoms are first sought out or first experienced, people aren't getting the help that they need. So when they do get help, um, it's actually more severe. And so one of the stats we do see is that people, black people um, have, when they do seek out help, have more severe health outcomes. Um, And that's a large part of that. And so that's a conversation about, You know, were people getting diagnosed correctly? Like, do they have access to the right, you know, uh, providers who could see them accurately? Um, And I think the one thing about schizophrenia in particular is that, you know, one of the hallmarks of that condition is paranoia, right? And so when you think about living as a black man in the United States, there's a lot of fear and quote unquote paranoia, but it's only paranoia if it's not grounded in reality. (laughs) <laughs> and so if you have a very visible record of why this fear and paranoia exist, um, then that would actually make you ineligible for schizophrenia. But if you are a provider who doesn't understand the impact of racism, uh, if you don't understand the mental health implications of that, you might see someone in the hospital who is saying, like, I don't know what you're going to do to me. I don't trust you as being paranoid and diagnosed them with schizophrenia. whereas that's a well-founded belief system based on the history of medicine and healthcare. So it's just really interesting to think about how flawed the system is and how that we don't have really accurate data on black mental health for that reason.
0: Wow. That's critical. Um, so could you just explain really briefly what schizophrenia is and um, the other diagnosis that black men tend to be misdiagnosed with. Um, I think a lot of us are just so uneducated that we have these um, uninformed visions of what these mental illnesses really mean.
1: hmm Yeah. And I think that's generally a problem, right? Is that we, sometimes it's hard for us as providers to translate information to like a person who's not in the field right. uh, who doesn't have that background, but, you know, schizophrenia in particular is a condition that's marked by, you know, paranoia is a really prevalent symptom in most people. So that is kind of described as this irrational fear and uh, of being uh, persecuted or sought out or being to be harmed. Um, And that can often lead to hallucinations, um, some of which can be visual. So someone seeing things that Uh, a healthier person would not see so you know i've literally uh had a client once who uh, was in an episode and perceived that there was a person sitting in a chair and that chair was empty right so it can be that extreme it could also be much more um uh, like benign so uh, another example is you can also have auditory hallucinations so people hearing things that aren't actually there. And there was one client, a colleague of mine had, who used to have auditory hallucinations of like, um, sort of like uh, creatures, like squirrels and birds and things like that, that were not in this person's area, right? right? But they, that's what that's what he heard. Um, and so that was a feature of his diagnosis. Um, and sometimes people can even have tactile hallucinations so they feel things on their skin or they they think they're touching something that actually isn't there. Right. Um, and so I think those are like the biggest, uh, uh, you know, the biggest sort of symptoms there. And obviously the, the risk there without treatment is that if you perceive certain things are there, you can act in accordance with what you believe is there, right? Or you could miss these really important cues that actually exist in the real world because you're preoccupied by a hallucination
0: Mm.
1: you know so you might think there's someone across the you might think that there's someone following you right or chasing you down the street and you run across the street without looking and then end up getting hit by a car Mm. and and i think that's the most important thing to understand is that people with mental health issues are far more likely to be the victims of crime and injury than the perpetrators Mm. Um, And I think that's really interesting when you think about that as it relates to Black men, because I think so often we're viewed as uh, violent, aggressive, angry, big, brutish people. Um, And I think that's part of the reason why conditions like antisocial personality disorder, uh, like Black men, are probably really overrepresented, Mm -hmm. because that condition is basically... um, Marked by this sort of uh, the character traits of believing that you don't have to follow the rules, that you don't need to be held liable for your actions. And so that you might take advantage of people, you might act in violent or aggressive ways. And um, what's really interesting about that is that a lot of Black men in prison may be diagnosed with this because they're breaking the law, right? So on, on paper, it's like, oh, you're breaking the rules. You're not, you think you're above the rules. But then you have to consider, well, what what law was it, right? If this person was uh, in, involved in a nonviolent crime, does that really make sense for that to be their diagnosis? If, you know, for instance, like marijuana possession, right? Then you're like, oh, this person doesn't follow the rules. They're a criminal. But actually, are they a criminal or are they just a person who happened to get caught where there are 10 other people who just didn't get caught repeatedly, and so, and then people suffer trauma when they're in prison and they're in these systems that aren't really built for actual rehabilitation. So it can make things worse. Hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, I'm, I'm also just, I'm just thinking about right now of the show Empire. Mm-hmm. If you've ever watched it? But one of the main characters, a black man, suffered from. I believe they titled it um, bipolar.
1: I think so. Yeah.
0: But the way he presented to me and my minimal knowledge about bipolar. He wasn't really bipolar. He may have had some other mental health issues. Um, and I think a lot of times as Black people. Anyone that ask, acts outside of any normal um, box, we call it bipolar. So can you talk a little bit about what bipolar actually means?
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's interesting because uh, bipolar disorder, one, there are two types, first of all. Uh, and it can look very different depending on the person,
0: mm.
1: right? Even with, with the same, uh, sub diagnosis for instance. Mm-hmm. So bipolar one <laughs> is, and I'm, I should say, I used to watch empire a long time ago, Okay, like the first two seasons. And then I kind of fell off. Um, and so I remember the characters, I think was starting to have those, mm-hmm. uh, they're starting to show that. So I don't know what it's been like, so I can't really <laughs> speak to that, but, um, You know, bipolar one is represented by this sort of cycling between what we call mania um, and depression. So it used to be called manic depression. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what that means is, is like people obviously, I think most people more understand the concept of depression, right? Low mood, low energy, low motivation. A lot of sometimes it comes with sadness, sometimes increased irritability. Um, those sort of like markers, but for mania, that's, you know, marked by this, um, this sort of compulsion to act in really risky ways. Mm. And so you're kind of like, it's kind of like, a for the best, uh, analogy I can describe it as, is if someone is high, like on a drug and they, it was like the best drug of their life. Mm. That's what it feels like to be manic. So <clears throat> you might do things that you wouldn't normally do because you feel really good. You will take risks that you wouldn't normally take because you, there's a part of you that feels euphoric. And so sometimes that manifests in like spending a ton of money that you don't really shouldn't be spending and might look in engaging in a lot of risky sex um, and not really thinking about consequences or implications um, driving excessively fast and taking other unnecessary risks, like those things like that. Um, and and so the bipolar one is characterized by that cycling. and so sometimes people cycle through that within like a couple of weeks of each other. They'll be like a couple like a week in a manic phase, and so they'll be a little bit more up and doing all these things and very busy mm-hmm. and not sleeping for days on end. And then the the depression will hit, and then they'll be in a depression for a a period of time, and really just be a shut in essentially. Um, And actually, with both bipolar one and bipolar two, substance abuse is really common concurrently, because that's a way that people manage the mood cycling often, right? right? And so that's people can get in a lot of trouble because if you're manic, you're like. It's like you feel really good, but you also know that something's like off. Mm. And so you're like, OK, I need to come down. So someone might take something that brings them down, mm. but then then feel too depressed and then want to take something to pick themselves back up. And you get a really dangerous cycle of like, is it the mental health? Is it the the substance that you're taking that's putting you all over the place? So it can be really, really dangerous. Uh, and bipolar, too, is is basically kind of like that. Is characterized by more intense depression Uh, so and very what we call like hypomanic which is kind of like a low mania Um, so you may not see someone who is you know spending all their money or um, taking these incredible risks but you might see someone who's like a lot more active than they usually are Mm You know, they're like, they've done all the errands and like in, like within like three days, they're done all the errands. They made all these appointments. They, they like took care of so many things, but then that depression hits and it just really takes them out of the game. So they can't go to the appointments they made. They can't follow up on the things that, um, that they set up for themselves. Um, and yeah, so sometimes people, and I think this might be the case with, uh, is the character Dre on Empire? I can't remember. Um, But sometimes people can also have psychotic features, which means like a disconnection with reality. So even someone with bipolar disorder could have um, sort of symptoms that might be similar to schizophrenia because they might be thinking, oh, this is like this person's out to get me. I need to protect myself. So I'm going to buy all these things to protect myself right? Or, uh, or other ways that that might manifest. So this is why it's so important, I think, for everyday people to not really get caught up in, oh, this is what bipolar is, or this is what depression is, because diagnosis is not a perfect science, and it looks different on everyone. So you might think like, oh, this person is bipolar, because they said they were bipolar, or they read an article or whatever. But if you were to actually see a doctor, or a licensed therapist, they say, actually, I think what you're dealing with is this, and this is how we treat that better.
2: I'm really glad that we like took this little detour to talk about this, because I think if Black people are, are hearing what these diagnoses actually entail, and then they see that their behaviors aren't aligned with that, they can advocate for themselves when they do go to the doctor and they're misdiagnosed. So. I think that little section that we had could be like super helpful and like maybe life saving for someone Mm -hmm. to hear. Um, So, yeah, I think making sure that we're empowering people by educating them is like really important. So this I'm already super excited about this, this conversation.
0: you touched on how um, Black men and Black males are generally looked at as violent in this country. Um, So can you talk about how historically um, Black men have had to navigate um, and express themselves in public or at home um, with this image of being violent? Um, We see it in the media all the time. Um, and I'm just curious about how that one impacts uh, the mental health, but also um, does it impact a black man actually seeking out therapy?
1: Absolutely. Um, one of the one of the books that was really transformative for me was a book by Bell Hooks um, called We Real Cool. Hmm. Um, which talks about Black masculinity. And I thought it articulated so well the challenges of being a Black man. And so along with that that perception of being strong, potentially violent or scary, there's also for Black men this stereotype of having to be cool Right, you just like oh yeah, like you can walk down the street and know people. They respect you and and have this kind of air about you. Mm-hmm. And I think that what that does is, you know, black men are humans just like anyone else and have the range of emotions and feelings that anyone else experiences. But when you are caught up in this system, like culturally, that says you are only allowed to be this, then sometimes it can put you in this box of having to perform that exclusively, right? To the exclusion of the other things. And that can bring a lot of internal conflict. And so one of the things I've seen in clients is uh, with black male clients in particular is coming to therapy and literally not having the language to describe their emotions. Right. But because no one ever taught them because they didn't need to know because they are strong and cool, right? They're just, it's everything's cool, everything's fine. And I think the one emotion that's often just afforded to black men has been anger, um, at least publicly, right? And so that's—and so that sort of reinforces that stereotype because then you have people saying like, you have black men saying the only emotion I can reasonably share without it being a threat to my masculinity or my race is to be angry. And so then you have, them only expressing that one emotion which reinforces that stereotype that that's all black men are meanwhile this person internally is saying like oh no but i'm actually grieving i just lost my mother i just lost my good friend and i'm sad but i don't even have language to ask for support because i don't know what how i differentiate sad from angry
0: yeah and so
1: i think that's the mental health impact is then you don't when you don't even know what you're really feeling and what your body is telling you, how are you supposed to talk about it? How are you supposed to know where to go? And sometimes what happens is, you know, the, the emotional lives of black men is also um, weaponized against them. Mm. Right. You have someone reaching out even within their family to say, like uh, if you start crying, right. If a black man starts crying, then a family member might say, like, what are you crying for? Like, you just buck up. It's going to be fine. Yeah. You got to do what you got to do. Right. And so then you never have space to be a mess. You never have space to explore what is sadness, what is irritation, what is what is actually joy. Right. And be able to sit in that and experience with the fullness of what that is. And so um, it can really create problems and identifying what can help you because you don't have the language and you don't have the support. You're just going it on your own a lot.
0: So how would this look for a younger Black male? So these things, do you think that they're learned just right from the beginning for young Black males? Um, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I, I, I do think so. Uh, I will also say I think that we're in a time now that, Black people are thinking about mental health and emotions differently. Um, So I think that people are doing better than they did 20, 30 years ago Mm -hmm. in rearing children. Right. And and both, uh, you know, whether they're male or female. Um, But I think for like a young, a young guy, you know, this might look like, you know, something happening like, you know, George Floyd happens in the news. right? Right. And you know, it might look, someone asks like, oh, how are you dealing with this? Like, this is crazy. Like, you know, how are you doing? It might be like, oh, you know, like people do, like this this is the same old stuff. Uh, so like, what are you going to do about it? So like just dismissing that you have like a real emotional experience with it, right? Whereas someone who's more um, connected or aware to their feelings, and I'll just use myself as an example, um, when Ahmaud Arbery, uh when his new, when the news of his murder sort of hit the airwaves i remember that there were days after when i would just go out to take a walk or i'd go out go to the door to put my shoes on to go take a walk that fear just swept over me
0: yeah
1: right and i could say like oh i'm scared to go outside because what if someone decides i'm not supposed to be where i am right Right, and so I'm able to identify that with myself because I've done a lot of work, mm-hmm. but that's not education I got when I was a kid, you know. So that was my personal work, and obviously, going to through training to be a therapist helped that a great deal. Um, but that's but that's the difference because then I can say, you know, to someone, oh, like I've actually been really scared and really nervous about being outside, and so then they can offer me support or make an adjustment. Right. They could say, oh, like, let's take a walk together. Right. Right? And then and then that helps that helps me feel safer. That helps me feel more at ease Mm -hmm. in that moment. Right. Yeah.
2: Um, My brother actually sent me something. He sent me a little um, recording of him talking about his experience with how his mental health was addressed being like a young black kid. Um, And he also sent me it. So I'm just going to read it, but I'll insert the audio.
3: Hey, everyone. I'm Jay's older brother, Amir. I feel like early in my life, like my early teen years, I had no real grasp of what mental health even was or how it applied to me. I think at this age, I was so ingrained in my friends and school and sports that I was too young to really experience these things or correctly vocalize your thoughts and feelings about what's going on. So it's hard to say that mental health really played any role around this time i feel like mental health on a national scale began to be talked about more frequently around the same time it was more distinctly introduced into my life during early high school a lot went on related to my mental health and just general life you know things as well as seeing my sister deal with the difficulties of anxiety and depression even with all this i never really considered my mental health and how all these things applied to me. Whenever people asked how I was doing, I would always say fine or good. And it was not like I had some deep unforeseen pain. I just never really considered analyzing my feelings and responses to everything in my life. I definitely still had support from all directions, but I think it was just a combination of trying to keep the masculine trope of being able to handle everything, paired with just personally not being mentally mature enough to go deeper. Thinking about now, I feel like if I had addressed my mental health more closely, I would have been able to help people around me, I just have a better sense of understanding and empathy. Now, I feel like mental health is talked about much more everywhere, you know, day-to-day, school, social media, between friends. I feel like the idea of going to a therapist is less taboo, and the discussions of depression, anxiety, and other issues are given much more serious consideration. I feel like it's, not, it's still not where things need to be, but generally we're moving in the right direction. And personally, I feel like I'm much more in tune with my mental health. I feel that, honestly, my mom and my sister were the main reasons that me and my entire family were really introduced to mental health at all and just increasing our understanding. But in general, I also feel that times have changed and more people are open for more and more diverse discussions. And uh, even I talk with my friends about mental health now and i think another positive from this situation is that i can look back on my life and see the times where my anxiety had maybe taken over my decision making or how my mood affects others and be able to recognize those situations and make different responses moving forward and just as a last note i think another like concrete step i can make is actually going to see a therapist i feel like the weight of the world right now and as it always has been for black people it just might be a good thing to talk to a professional as opposed to not talking at all or just talking about talking to, you know, your problems to the people around you. And I know and I feel like there's a lot of other black men and just black people in general who have begun this process of understanding their mental health, but maybe not going to see a professional and I think that would be a good next step.
2: Um so yeah, I feel like from him and other young black men, I've kind of seen the similar experience of like, I, you know, wasn't in like a serious amount of pain, but I still didn't know that I, I didn't know how to talk about my feelings, or I didn't know that I was allowed to talk about my feelings. So is that like something similar that you've seen um, in, in your clients?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's funny because socially, how are you doing? Is such a normal, like, everyday question, and so what that means is that we also all respond in the same way, like, okay, or good, right? Usually, no one rarely, rarely do people say, "I'm great today," (laughs) or, or, "I'm actually terrible today," (laughs) right? No one ever says that. And so I think, I I love what you shared because I think it is so reflective of a lot of the experiences of black men. And I think black people in general have that stereotype of needing to be strong and together. And so they present as fine, always, no matter what's going on. And because that's the, and that's like socially appropriate, right? Um, To be like, I'm good. Um, And I think that one thing that we all can do to help advance those conversations in our homes and with our friends and, you know, sons. And it's just to take that a little step further, right? Just like poke on that question a little bit more, know that that person is probably going to say good or fine Mm -hmm. and then say like, okay, but like, really like what's been happening. Right. And maybe that helps them start to talk about, Oh, well, like my teacher did this or the professor said this and I was pissed or, um, you know, uh, this happened at home and it was, it was kind of annoying and and then that's 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 mental health too like m- everyone has mental health yeah it's not just oh do you have a diagnosable condition or not it's that your emotional life which we all have is mental health and so we all have emotions and if we can just challenge each other not to be automatic uh in saying like okay or fine that's one way we can normalize conversations about emotions and beat away that stigma like okay well you're good like are you really good like what does good mean because you look kind of tired are you tired Mm -hmm. why are you so tired what's going on
2: yeah I think like even that even simply saying instead of good you're tired like tired isn't even really like Mm -hmm. going to your emotions it's just saying yeah I like I don't feel great right now I'm tired um so yes like simple things like that I think have a big impact um and you mentioned earlier about how um black women are helping uh black men begin to have these conversations about um mental health and when we think about black women and their mental health there's this narrative of like um that the like strong black women narrative that comes from the sort of like intergenerational trauma that we have in our bodies um, so I'm kind of familiar with how intergenerational trauma affects you know black women and black women's bodies so I was wondering if you could give some input on how it affects black men
1: yeah, I, I think there's a very similar process that happens for black men, um, and it it's interesting because people when we talk about intergenerational trauma, um, we tend to think about that sharing as being uh, or that knowledge and that trauma is being shared through like expression and voice and stories, etc. But what's really interesting is what we now know is that sometimes. intergenerational trauma is passed down through genes. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, there's a real interesting field of research that's understanding that trauma, the trauma of racism, the trauma of slavery, um, that the trauma of patriarchy um, negatively impacts all of us. And I think, you know, Black men also have this, uh, that sort of expectation of being, strong or being cool um, is something that's both passed down genetically and through experience but is also then communicated and reinforced in conversations right it's not only what what someone says to you it's also what someone doesn't say say to you right it's like do they ask you how they how you're doing or that's one way to you know see your value as an emotional being but what if they don't ask you that message is maybe they don't care, right? Or if you're watching you know a movie or film with uh, your family at home and you know a black man is crying, what's the reaction around the people in the room? right? Are they showing empathy? are they do they look like they're concerned? or are they do they look uncomfortable? That's also a message that gets passed down from generations. even if you say nothing, You know, and so it's like uh, sometimes what it looks like in working through that is helping people understand what are those messages that you got from people, whether they were said or unsaid. And then how was that influenced by your history and your lineage as a black person? Right. What stories did you hear growing up that what meaning did you take from that? I mean, when I was coming up there, it was a rite of passage to watch Roots and um i like suffered through that several times over because my mom was obsessed (laughs) and i was like can we not watch i don't want to see like people getting beat and like all these awful things happening but like she was like no you need to understand this and you know that but that also it's a double-edged sword right because that part of that message is like we can survive anything Right? We're resilient people. And that's what I love about black people. And that's what I like to communicate black people to create safety in spaces. Like this is part of your DNA. Mm -hmm. That you are survivors. You are, you know, we are all people who can be resilient in very particular ways. But that doesn't mean you always have to be strong. Right. And strong doesn't look like being okay. Sometimes strong means being able to break down and then regroup when you need to and get back to things. That's also strong. Um, So yeah, unpacking a lot of those messages and I think is really important for people.
0: Well, you just said something that um, my son might not be happy that I bring it up, but I think it's fine. (laughs) So (laughs) um, that was the first time that I heard his excerpt about mental health, but I was just reminded of uh, when he was in fourth grade he was kind of goofing off and being silly in class. At the same time, when he would come home from school almost daily, he would break down and cry. Um, So we spoke with his school psychologist um, who he would, he started having um, lunch with her once a week. And she just explained that for him, he was holding it together during the day so that when he came home he felt safe enough to break down and cry or just leave. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah
1: yeah and i i man I, I think that's really powerful and i think what i've also seen is that there are some people who don't even do that right right like even at home it actually isn't a safe space yeah and so they don't allow themselves to actually be vulnerable to be to be romantic Mm -hmm. which is considered like unmanly in a way, right. To, to be affectionate in particular ways, to Mm -hmm. cry, to express joy. Like even I just like one of the things I've actually talked about clients with is that, you know, it's okay for you to smile.
0: Wow. Mm -hmm. Cause
1: like, I'm like, when do you express joy and how do you express joy? Mm. Right. And just like we but we don't recognize that, like, oh, actually, there's coded language we get messages we get about smiling, that that it's inherently feminizing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so then you think about what you feel. Okay, maybe I'm not supposed to feel joy. Right. So it's a lot of unpacking and like relearning. Um, And I think that that's why it's important for me to have conversations like this, because I think that's how you create safety and that's how you give people the permission to be their fuller selves um, no matter the, the situation and to work towards that, you know?
2: Yeah, I think like mom, how you were mentioning how he, the psychologist said he was holding things together. I do think that that holding together, that happens a lot in the home and I, I feel like especially in in black families in terms of like speaking up uh as a a young person to the like older people in the family speaking up in any way can be seen as like disrespectful and having an attitude and being disobedient so like how do how do we navigate like being these emotional beings that are being affected but being scared about speaking up about it because we don't want to come across as being disrespectful to our family. Like, I feel like that's a struggle that, um, a lot of black kids have, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: especially right now, because we have to be, a lot of us have to be at home, um, Mm -hmm. because of the pandemic. So we're forced to be in environments with our parents where we may feel like we don't have space to um process our emotions so do you have like any input on how to navigate that
1: yeah I have I have two quick points one would be um, try to it is important to communicate those things Um I think the important thing is to keep in mind to try to communicate them when you're not highly emotionally activated mm-hmm. So, right like When the thing happens, especially if this is your family dynamic and that you feel like you can't necessarily express things because it's seen this way, take a beat, make a note of it, and then bring it back when you feel a bit calmer. Um, That's a very small part of my answer. The bigger part of my answer is that it has nothing to do with the kids. Right. Right. (laughs) It's the parent's parent's responsibility to create the environment of safety, Right. And uh, I think one of the things I've really appreciated seeing on Twitter is um, someone, uh, I've seen this come up several times, just the idea to normalize apologizing to your children, Mm -hmm. which I know that, like, in Black families, that is not a thing. (laughs) That's not a thing, right? Because I know if there's some parents listening to this, I know they're like, oh, my God, this man has lost his mind, (laughs) right? But but like, how do you, yeah. like, you know, right. That's because at home, you're really teaching, you know, your, your family, how to negotiate the world. You're teaching your kids how to do that. Right. And so if you can, as a parent, create a little bit more space to also not be reactive. Right. And your kid says, actually, that really hurt my feelings. Mm-hmm. To to take a beat and to deal with. And I know as parent, like as a parent, that, means a lot of different things for you, right? So a lot comes up for you emotionally. Just take a moment to pause and let the first thing that comes out of your mouth be, you know what? I'm sorry, that was not my intention. And prioritize that, then say whatever else you have to say, because that is the reinforcement that we need uh, You know, as black people within families and otherwise. That's the acknowledgement. That's the validation to say, what you said was valid. And I appreciate you sharing that with me. And it's hard work, right? (laughs) Um, But I think that's what really has to be done.
2: So my next question is on a different path um it's more about you and your experience as um someone working in the mental health field so first i just want to ask like what inspired you to make your own practice
1: yeah that's a great question um i had been working in mental health for several years um And I think one of the things I found really troubling about the field was um, that we weren't talking about mental health from a holistic or integrative perspective, right? And and some of that speaks to like cultural issues, but I think in large part it was like, largely the mental health field is very medical. And so there's like this disconnect from like your brain and the rest of your body, right? And what we, and I was like, it doesn't make sense, like intuitively that like you, we experience stress both like in our thoughts, but also in our bodies. You know, I know when I'm like going through it, like I might have back pain or my neck gets stiff, Mm -hmm. right. Or like all these other, I have like digestional trouble and I'm like, oh, like something's going on with me. And so but people like the field tends to sort of focus on thoughts and thoughts and thoughts in mental health. And I was like, well, this doesn't make sense. We have to take care of a whole person and not just look at them as a symptom, a cluster of symptoms. Right. So being able to talk about all these different things, like how your body's experiencing the world and how the world experiences you and how that impacts how you feel and see things. Um, And so for me, and my business partner, um, like it was important for us to create a space where we could treat people holistically. And we always say, but like we, even as therapists, we show up as people first and providers second. Yeah. And that a lot of times gets lost in healthcare because you, you turn into a diagnosis. They say, oh, you have high blood pressure? Take this pill. This is what you're going to do. Instead of saying, like, hey, Jess. It seems like I'm noticing that you have elevated blood pressure. Let's talk about what may be behind that. You know, it could be a diet thing, but it also could be a stress thing. What's going on in your life? Maybe you'd benefit from this because it often is both. Right. And so that's why it was really important for us to start um, this, this practice and be able to speak to a lot of people and offer resources for people who don't have access to therapy or don't yet see it as a viable option. So like with whether it's with our podcast or the stuff, the resources that are on our page to say, if you want to work on some things, here are some things for you to start with and that, you know, is coming from a good place, from like a reasonable, responsible um, professional place that you could start to do some work and feel good about that.
0: Yeah. So when black men come to your practice, um, do do you find that they feel safe because you're black therapist um and do you, they seek you out because you're a black therapist
1: yes and yes um <laughs> for that reason and and one of the things I, I love the internet because you know you get to be visible and that's why it's really important for me to be a visible black male therapist mm-hmm. um so i'm like okay you get to see me you get to see my fro you get to see all that i'm coming with right. and i'm going to be like okay so what's the feeling Let's talk about it. Let's get in there. And that, I think it's so important. And I've, it's interesting because I'm in New York city and even in New York city, I'm very rare. Yeah, It's very rare to be a black male therapist. And I, all the time I do initial uh, like initial phone consults with people before we meet just to like, see if there's a fit, see if they have any questions before we get started, et cetera. And Nine times out of 10, someone verbally expresses, man, I'm so glad I found you. Wow. For that reason. Wow. To say like, oh, I know because, oh, I tried therapy before and it was like this old white woman. And I would say I felt like I had to like shield how I was talking with her. I'm like, oh, no, we're not going to code switch here. You talk how you talk. Let's go. Right. Right? And, And I think that's really important to create that safety, you know, to just say like, just show up as you are. And I think that my visible self communicates that. And I reinforce that in the work that I do.
0: Wow. So as a professional in the field, what is your experience? Meaning between yourself and other mental health professionals? What is that like navigating being, I'm I'm guessing, one of the few black therapists probably in the whole country?
1: (laughs) No There are not a lot of us. Um, And I, I don't know, like I'm, to be honest, especially in a real metropolitan area, it's been a bonus for me because I stick out. And in this field, that's a good thing.
0: Right.
1: Um, because there because there aren't a lot of male therapists, like if your people are hiring for a team, they, they already have mostly female counselors. And so they're like, oh, it would be really good to have a male therapist on board, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think other than that, I think, So it's been, I've been very fortunate. I I will say that. I think the thing that's difficult is sort of like living at that intersection of being a black man and having to navigate conversations around culture and race uh, sometimes does become hairy because most of the times I'm in a room with a lot of white women, Mm. right? And so I have to be conscious of how I am showing up as a black person, but also as a man, Right, because if I say, actually, what you said was wrong for this reason, then I'm like the man who's like stepping up and saying like, oh, what you're saying is wrong. Right. Right. And but at the same time, I know that I'm not trying to speak from this, like I'm mansplaining kind of thing, but I'm saying like, no, I have this lived experience that can inform what you're saying. And so there's for me, that's always been a delicate dance of like how how forward or how assertive can I be in spaces for that reason?
2: Um this is just a question out of curiosity because I want to work in the field. Um so like like what degree did you get?
1: Yeah. Great question. Yeah. Um so I went to undergrad and got my bachelor's in psychology, um which is not required to be a therapist by the way. Um obviously very very helpful cuz I had like a four year head start on psychology when I got to grad school. Um, And so I was like, yeah, I remember that. All right, take this a little bit deeper. Um, But um, so I got uh, two master's degrees in psychological counseling. Um, So my program was a two year program, um, which I think is relatively um, the same across the board. Um, And it, my program was a license-eligible program. So what that means is is that it is a track a, a tract that um, sort of gives you the ability to be licensed after graduation with the state because every state requires a license. Um, and so, you know, I went to a program that met all the educational requirements for licensure. And then after getting my degrees, my master's degrees, I had to do a couple of years of supervised practice um, and pass an exam to be able to be licensed.
2: Okay. Yeah, I think I often hear um, the the white path to becoming a therapist and there's a lot of, um, I don't know, I just feel like there's probably a lot of uh young black people who are looking to be a therapist but like there's not many models of that um so yeah I'm just always interested when I do get to talk to a black therapist to see like what path they chose um just because I want to see what might work for me <laughs> mm-hmm. um because I know we need more of us in the yeah. field
1: absolutely yeah, yeah.
2: um So we are almost at time and I want to make sure that um, people are able to, you know, reach you and see all of the work that you're doing. So what are some ways that we and our listeners can stay up to date with the work that you're doing and the stuff that's going on with Viva Wellness?
1: Yeah, uh, I think the best way to keep up with me and what I'm doing is to keep up with Viva. Um, so you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Viva Wellness NYC. Um, we have a podcast that's on most major podcast platforms called the Viva Wellness Podcast. Where you hear me and my business partner, who's also my good friend, talk about all sorts of mental health and related things. Um, we think we're pretty funny because um, we're, we're, very, we're very much the same, but also a little different, um, which is also why we work. Um, she's a white woman uh, i'm a black man we are the best of friends and we work really well together and we have conversations like this uh, you know in our personal lives but also on the podcast so that's a good way to keep up with us and um yeah i'm i also have social media but to be honest i don't you know update it that often <laughs> so Viva's is the best way you'll know what's going on with me uh, so please follow us send us questions send us ideas we're always happy to engage with people and You know, if there are things that you want to hear about from me um, or us, like let us know uh, because we're happy to have conversations that people want to hear and provide those resources.
2: Okay. And then lastly, this question was supposed to be earlier, but I think it's definitely important. Um, Like what's one thing or just something that you think Black men and boys need to hear right now?
1: (sighs) Hmm. a good question. I think that one thing I want Black men and boys to know is that you have value and worth, not just because how you show up or what expectations you feel for people, but just as you are, without filter or disclaim, you have worth and value and I just want you to sit with that idea and visit with that whenever you don't feel strong. Yeah.
2: Okay. Thank you. you going to make my mom cry. <laughs> 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 Thank you so much for being here. I am really glad that we had this conversation and I'm excited to listen back to it um, and share this. I think this was a much needed conversation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I I love talking about these things. I could obviously I do it most of the day all day. um, (laughs) So I could do it more. So yeah, thank you so much.
2: Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Students of Mind. We really enjoyed our conversation with Jarrell, and we hope that you did too. For resources and social media mentioned in the episode, check the description of this episode. I also wanted to say thank you for 250 downloads, which is really exciting. And I've really enjoyed doing this podcast, and I'm glad that others are seeming to enjoy it as well. If you get a chance, please give the show a review so we can get the information being shared in each episode into more ears to help destigmatize mental health. Thank you again for listening, and I will see you next time.